0: East Lansing Crime Warp, a podcast hosted by myself, Hannah Brock, and my co-host, Maddie Monroe. Each week, we'll update you on current crime, and then we'll take you back to a crime blast from the past. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned.
1: This week, we're covering the 1993 murder of Rose Larner, but before we get into it, we have a few current crime-related updates. So Hannah, can you tell me a little bit about the violent phone call made to Alyssa Slotkin?
0: Yeah. So Alyssa Slotkin, a U.S. representative, had a voicemail left at her campaign headquarters that used threatening, violent, and sexually explicit language. The U.S. Capitol Police actually traced the call and found that it was an Ingham County minor that didn't actually pose a threat to her. And from what I've gathered, I'm not really sure if any charges were issued. The U.S. Capitol Police unfortunately didn't get back to me to talk about it further, but yeah, that pretty much sums it up. Can you also talk
1: a little bit about the new ELPD chief's goals?
0: Yeah, so I interviewed Kim Johnson, the new ELPD chief, um, a few weeks ago, And a lot of his goals are based on community. He said he's a little bit old school and he wants to get ELPD police officers out in the neighborhoods. He listed several different ways that he would like them to do that and in what areas. But he's basically just trying to reconnect with the community. I asked him a little bit about trust and if he thought that he was going to do that based on trying to gain more trust from the community. And he basically said that the police department couldn't demand trust from anybody, but they could definitely do things to gain trust. So he's been really active. I don't know. You cover city council meetings. Has he been in attendance? Um, He has been in attendance
1: um, to a few of the meetings since he was named the new chief. Um, He hasn't spoken a whole lot. Mostly Steve Gonzalez has still been speaking since um, Kim Johnson is still new, but he has been in attendance.
0: Right. And that's pretty much similar to the Police Oversight Study Committee. He is in attendance, but he usually leaves a lot of the talking to Steve Gonzalez. I mean, he's the deputy chief now, but he served as the interim police chief, and he's had a lot more experience with the department. I mean, Johnson hasn't been with ELPD since 2012, so there's been, I'm sure, quite a few changes. So,
1: yeah. Awesome. Can you also tell us a little bit about the seven citations that were issued on this weekend's past game day.
0: Yeah, so I think before the game day, our very first game happened, that City Council, the City of East Lansing, ELPD, and MSUP were trying to really warn people, please do not tailgate. The East Lansing City Council actually passed a resolution to start charging people $500 fines for going over the gathering limits. So there were seven parties that were given a $500 fine this weekend, and that was just for Saturday. There's been a lot of warning from MSU PD, ELPD, the City of Eastland, saying the university through the MSU Community Compact, and it doesn't seem that gatherings are an issue on campus. I don't know if it's because, I mean, isn't there only one person per dorm right now? I believe so, yes. Okay, so, I mean, maybe that's the reason, but um, parties still continue in East Lansing, and I don't really know what's going to make them stop. So that concludes this week's crime update, but before we get into the crime blast from the past, we want to warn our listeners that this is a graphic case. 18-year-old Rose Launer was described as mouthy, fearless, friendly, and streetwise. She had a quick temper and her friends commonly called her the vampire, which was said to fit her wiry personality. She frequently slept through the day and wandered around Lansing's Southwest side all night with her friends. She went to church twice a week and always carried a Bible. She dreamed of being a police officer, like her uncle when she grew up. Friends and family said she craved attention, but had a big heart. She was diagnosed as hyperactive in her early teens only stopping moving to sleep, shower three times a day, and talk on the phone. She would talk on the phone whenever she had the chance, most frequently with Billy Brown. Brown was a boy she met when she was eight and became her fifth grade classmate at Maple Grove Elementary. They quickly became best friends.
1: In December of 1991, Rose dropped out of high school at 16 and enrolled at Harry Hill Center for Academics and Technology. However, she quit after only a month. She then signed up for the US Army, hoping it would help her aspirations to become a police officer. At 17 years old, Rose enrolled in vocational school in Grand Rapids to finish her high school degree and earn her general equivalency diploma in June of 1993. That summer, Rose met a local rapper, John Ortiz Kehoe, and the two soon started dating. Rose asked her mother if John could move in and she allowed it, until finding out that John had guns in the house, her mother kicked him out, and Rose and John's relationship quickly ended.
0: Rose became infuriated with John as she did not want the relationship to end. However, he was no longer interested in her. That fall, Rose heard back from the U.S. Army, but despite her excellent grades, she was not accepted. One article said she was heartbroken from her breakup with John and the denial from the U.S. Army, while an episode of Forensic Files said she was driven by John's new date. Either way, Rose drove her mother's man into John's car outside a party he was throwing at a fraternity near Michigan State. Rose's friend, Billy Brown, drove her home after the incident. This was not an unusual occurrence for Rose, as she reportedly caused
1: many problems for John after the breakup, including hiding behind trees in locations where John was and calling him names to embarrass him. The two frequently got into arguments. A few days after the incident at the party, Rose went to work her shift at the Meyer Pizzeria, After her shift, she visited her mother who worked at a local quality dairy convenience store. She checked in with her mother at 1.20am and told her she was going out with the man she was dating. However, her mother asked her not to go, that she had a bad feeling, and that the van was low on oil. Rose insisted she go and proceeded on foot. This would be her mother's last interaction with Rose before she went missing.
0: Rose went missing December 7th, 1993. According to a Forensic Files episode, investigators initially believed she had run away, given that she was a rebellious teen. According to her mother, Rose never arrived at her date's house. There was no trace of Rose. So I know this is usually the part that we do some commentary and reflection on the case, but honestly, I have no words. I have no words on this case. All right, then let's get back into it.
1: For the next three years, police and Larner's family would continue searching for clues to Rose's disappearance. Detectives and personnel searched fields and highways. Divers were sent to search local bodies of water. Gravel pits were drained and local homes were torn apart by investigators. Rumors began circulating that Brown and Kehoe may have been involved in Rose's disappearance. Police questioned both men and each denied any knowledge of Rose's whereabouts. A pattern developed over three years of tips to police. Kehoe and Brown were
0: involved. After a change in Michigan State Police investigators, police began following that path. In 1996, the cold case finally felt the heat. Billy Brown finally broke. The following testimony by Billy Brown made one investigator say he felt like he had met Satan. According to Brown, he had run into Rose as she was leaving Quality Dairy. She had asked him to invite Kehoe for the three to hang out and drink for the remainder of the night. According to Forensic Files, Kehoe said he would only agree if Rose would have sex with both men. According to Brown, she agreed. The three planned to hang out
1: at Kehoe's grandparents' home, which was empty at the time. On the way over, they stopped to get supplies for the evening. Brown testified that he would later find out Kehoe had entered the store and purchased a knife, hatchet, and lighter fluid. When the three arrived at the house, they took a shower together. At this point in time, Rose changed her mind about the sexual stipulation posed by Kehoe. According to Brown, the three exited the shower and Kehoe began to strangle Rose. He then pulled her into the shower and slit her throat. He then began dismembering her with a hatchet.
0: Brown and Kehoe then spent 48 hours cleaning every square inch of the home. They rinsed their bloody utensils in the sump pump of the basement. After collecting Rose's remains, They drove to Brown's parents' empty cabin, 100 miles north, and proceeded to burn Rose's body for 10 hours. This is where Brown's testimony hit a wild turn. He said Kehoe pulled a piece of Rose's flesh from her burning remains. Brown said Kehoe, quote, put it on a piece of bread with some mustard on it and ate it, just for the experience, just to know. On their way back to the Lansing area, they dumped Rose's ashes
1: along the highway. After investigators talked to Brown, they began searching for evidence in Kehoe's grandparents' home. According to Investigation Discovery, investigators also uncovered a plot to blow up Brown's home by a man named Robert Wood, a friend of
0: Kehoe's. The investigators sprayed luminol throughout Kehoe's grandparents' home, which illuminates trace amounts of blood. They found a bloody bucket print but could not determine any DNA evidence. The first promising forensic evidence was a small speck of blood on a section of wallpaper near the bathroom. After testing the one speck of blood spatter, they were able to match Rose's DNA with a blood sample from a previous incident in which Rose was sexually assaulted. This piece of evidence marked the first corroboration of Brown's testimony.
1: The investigators then drained the sump pump in the basement and found bone fragments. Forensic archaeologists also excavated the area in which Rose's body was burned. They found human bone fragments as well. One forensic scientist said the fragments were no larger than a pea. These minuscule bone fragments and one speck of blood constituted the entirety of forensic evidence in Rose's case. Despite evidence mostly being based on Brown's testimony alone, they focused on Kehoe as the accused murderer. Investigators argued that Kehoe had more motivation to murder Rose as they had frequently argued and she had damaged his vehicle.
0: In 1996, a bulletin for Kehoe's capture was issued across the U.S. Kehoe was described as a flight risk. Kehoe was captured in Mexico after a four-month manhunt, according to Lansing State Journal. In exchange for testifying against Kehoe, Brown served one year for assisting in the cover-up of Rose's murder. In the segment of Forensic Files, he said he stayed quiet for years because he was scared of Kehoe. Rose's mother forgave Billy and visited Rose's grave with him. At this time, Kehoe is serving a life sentence without parole. However, he has remained active through a blog and he even published a book.
1: In the book, Kehoe reflects on his time in prison, as well as how he got there. He continues to maintain his innocence in Rose's murder. He said he left to get food for the three. And when he returned, Brown was high on cocaine and Rose was dead. In the time between Rose's murder and his conviction, Kehoe said he was involved with drug-related crimes. Kehoe said he blames himself for not going to the police upon Rose's murder. I think, overall, this case is terrifying. Horrifying? When I started reading through some of the articles for the first time, I felt nauseous. It just really struck a nerve with me because of just how graphic this case is and kind of how out of the blue it comes about. I mean, there was a long period of time where no one said a word about Rose. Nobody said anything about where she was. And then all of a sudden, Brown just kind of spills the beans and tells his entire testimony and everything that happened.
0: Right, and I... I mean, I don't know if it's my place to say, but I just can't see how he helped cover up something so horrible and only served one year.
1: Yeah, I mean, I understand the prosecutor kind of gave him just the one year since he did help. But one year doesn't seem like a fit.
0: A fit punishment. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, if we're really looking at it, without Brown, there's no case. Right. It was cold. For three years. Right. I mean, at that point, I bet investigators were thinking this is never going to come to fruition. They probably started to give up. Right. It was a switch in investigators that made it go further. I guess maybe a fresh set of eyes. I'm not really sure. I'm so uncomfortable speaking about this case. The cannibalism part, I... The whole thing is a lot. Yeah. And then... Another thing that I find interesting is that Kehoe keeps up a blog Mm -hmm. and published a book. I'm not completely aware of what it's obviously like being in prison, but he's very active still.
1: He's very active on social media and through his blog and the book that he published In the fact that he did not murder her.
0: Right. That he is innocent. Right. He claims that he's innocent in the murder, but that he did assist in covering it up. Right. So that's where the case is just kind of weird to me, because they're both pointing fingers. It
1: makes you wonder if it would have happened the other way around. If Kehoe would have been the first one to confess, would the trial have ended in the same
0: way? I don't know. We'll never know. Yeah. I mean... What's also kind of heartbreaking is that Billy Brown was her friend since she was eight years old. Can you imagine the people that you know from when you were little
1: growing up to
0: cover up your murder?
1: It's just heartbreaking. Overall, the entire case is heartbreaking. I mean, she was 18 years old. She was just starting her life. She'd just gotten a high school diploma.
0: And I know her mom talked about how... She really believed that Rose would have eventually become a police officer. I mean, the the articles on who she was just kind of humanized it more. I know sometimes when we read about crime, when we read those cases, I mean, not every time are we struck, you know? Mm-hmm. But with this one, reading about who she was, I was struck. I felt like, I don't know, like maybe I knew her.
1: Yeah, the LSJ article went into really great detail um, about who she was, her childhood, her siblings, her parents, her family dynamic, what she did, just kind of her life overall, and her personality especially. I know that some of the articles too talk about how she was always talking on the phone.
0: I mean, so obviously she was a friendly person, right? She was outgoing. She was just mixed up with the wrong people. And I don't know how much credibility I want to give to Kehoe's book, Mm -hmm. um, but it paints a very different picture. And I guess, I don't know. I didn't expect for there to be a book when I selected this case. I did not think there was going to be a blog or a book. And I guess that's just what strikes me as different. There's been very in-depth coverage what coverage there is, is very in-depth.
1: There's not a lot of coverage though. The main source for information we had for this case was the Lansing State Journal. They have, I believe, two or three articles describing this case in pretty great detail. Um, But there's not really any other media outlets who really heavily covered this, and not like anything we've seen in the previous cases that we've done.
0: Right. I'm not sure if I would go as far to say that there wasn't a lot of media coverage because I don't see this not being widely covered. I just think it was something with the with the databases. We've been doing stuff that's a bit older. Mm-hmm. This is a little bit more current. Not quite, because it happened in the nineties, before I was even born, before you were even born. Right. But I don't know. It's something about that time period just really wasn't covered in the databases. I mean, I I struggle to give commentary mm-hmm. on this. I, I think the case speaks for itself. It is a wild case. That it is. And yeah, if you're listening to this on a platform in which you can comment, feel free to give us your thoughts because we're not really able to give you ours. Thank you for listening to our third episode of East Lansing Crime War. We look forward to telling you another crime story in two weeks. Stay safe and have a happy Halloween.